0: I always put my cup down by the pew and there's spider webs down there. It always gets in there like the second time in three weeks. That's going to be interesting. It is horrifying, yeah. Wow. Okay. Fight through that uh, this morning, but anyway. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha Church again. Uh, My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, if you are uh, new. And glad you guys are, are here. This is way out of order. There we go. So, how's it out there, by the way? Is it, uh, is it uh, blizzardy? Is it bad? No. Oh, it's not. Okay. Yeah, I was. Uh, I had to do a double take. I walked out of my house at about six, and it was. It was like, I had to look around and check my phone because it was just this perfect two inches of snow. There's like a few flurries falling down. No wind. It was just this perfect day. I'm like, because I heard it was going to be a blizzard, but like, what in the world? Check my phone a second time. Must be coming later or something, or maybe not in the city. But anyway. <laughs> so it's fine out there. It sounds like so. Anyway, uh, we'll we'll, uh, jump right into it today, guys, in Matthew. uh, We are uh, just starting uh, the middle portions of, or crossing the middle portions of Matthew right now. So if you're newer to our church, uh, I'll catch up to speed here for a few minutes before we dive into Matthew 16, 1 to 12. But uh, we are subtitling really the, I want to say middle sections, but in a sense it's pretty much 75% of the book. So uh, the middle sections and then some, declaring and demonstrating the gospel of the kingdom. So it's where we've been for a while, so if you're just joining us uh, we've been seeing this over and over again. Jesus is either declaring or talking about the kingdom of God, the gospel of that, the good news of that coming into the world. Jesus being the king, to be clear, and the kingdom of God being this idea of salvation. So if kingdom of God is kind of nebulous to you and confusing, just plug in salvation. In other words, God is coming to reign as king over us with, with those who are saved as his people. So think about what the good kings did, if you know this. In the Old Testament, they, they gathered people, they fought for their people, they provided for their people, They set up a a wall of protection around their people. They gave refuge to them. All those things and more is what Jesus is doing for us and and offering that at this point. It's going to climax at the cross. That's the way the kingdom of God really comes into the world finally and fully, though we're seeing glimpses of it now. The good news, the hint of that is here presently in the earlier parts of Matthew, but it's going to climax at the cross, and that's where he's going to set up all of that that I just mentioned, that type of kingdom for us uh, spiritually to enjoy and, and to be beneficiaries of, to be saved in. So that's what we're talking about, declaring that Jesus is talking about it, but he's actually doing a lot more demonstrating of it in these sections. So in other words, we see physically demonstrated healings and feedings and miracles and different types of interactions with people that tell us about the gospel in in, in positive and negative ways. So we see positively him demonstrating what he's about to do on the cross, but also we see negative responses to that. We learn what the gospel isn't. The Bible does that a lot. It says, this is what the gospel is because of what Jesus just said here, and this is what the gospel is not. And I love that it does both because it just helps us get a fuller definition of what it is and then protects us from those things that might sound a lot like it, but they're half-truths, they're half-gospels, not not full ones, which are so easy to entertain and so easy to partake of. And we're going to see some of that play into today, uh, especially, so as Jesus is teaching all of this, he's getting a lot of resistance, and if you've been here for our series, you've gleaned that he, people are responding positively to him but a lot of people are offended and turned away and a lot of people actually at this point as we read a few chapters earlier uh, the pharisees the sadducees the religious rulers of the day are set out to kill him they want to destroy him so he's already on you know these these individuals hit lists and they're trying to figure out how can we kill this individual uh, who we are against so i'll explain a little bit more of that as we're going on but we're going to see them come into the picture again today in Matthew 16, and also Jesus' interaction subsequently with his disciples after the fact. A bit of a teachable moment, as he um, likes to do sometimes. So we'll see, it, we'll see that play out here this morning. But let's read it to begin. Beware of Leaven is the uh, title of today, Matthew 16, 1-12. Verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves. Saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them beware of the leaven of bread But of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. All right, so basically, two parts to the narrative that do correspond to each other, but also to uh, sections we've already looked at here in Matthew. So I'll go back and review some of this here shortly. But basically, it breaks down with Jesus' interaction with these Pharisees and Sadducees and then subsequent interaction with his disciples. Like I said before, using the first interaction as this uh, teachable moment for the, the 12, the disciples. So, I want to walk through this generally, uh, really quick here. There's, there's some of this that's pretty easy to get at face value and some that's not so much. So, I want to walk through it generally and make sure we're defining terms here properly. And then we'll go back and look at this a little bit more specifically. Two things in particular I think that Jesus has, especially for his disciples, after the fact, after he talks about the sign of Jonah and has his confrontation with the religious rulers that I think are especially important for us today. So, that's more the specific element. But we'll start with the general. So just a note on the Pharisees and the Sadducees, if you're newer to the Bible, uh, newer to to the the gospel accounts maybe of the New Testament and to who these individuals are, they are representative of two camps of Jewish religious rulers of the day. And sometimes we see scribes thrown in as well, kind of a third camp there, but today just the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They they were a lot alike in a lot of ways in that they saw it as their job description, so to speak, to be teachers, the teachers of Israel, uh, the protectors of law, Essentially, in Old Testament, they wouldn't have called it that, but of uh, Old Testament theology, and basically just spiritual oversight. But they differentiated on a lot of issues as well, theologically. So they didn't really like each other too well. But when Jesus comes along with his at least perceived progressive agenda, there's a little bit of a "the enemy of my enemy is my friend" kind of idea going on. And so the Pharisees and Sadducees, to see them together here, uh, basically on seemingly on a united front, and they are. We know that, but. From here, at least seemingly so, on some kind of united front, is a little unique because they have this common antagonist or enemy here. And so that's what's going on. But in general, understand that that Jesus or that these individuals are well-meaning, the Pharisees and Sadducees, but a very at least at times well-meaning. They're they're testing them here, which is sinister and evil. But in general, a lot of times we give them a bad rap, they are well-meaning spiritual guides. But they are very misguided on the other side of the coin. They butt heads with Jesus all the time, primarily with their own misunderstanding of the Bible. It's a big thing that Jesus does a lot is just acknowledges that. You don't read the Bible correctly. There is a right way to read it. and it's, The right way to read it is to read it as though I'm the hero of it. But they weren't reading it that way. They're reading more of themselves into it. So that's the other side of things is they, are, they had more of a self-obsessed view of spirituality and just life in general. And so because of those two things, if you don't know anything about Jesus, you can just understand the oil and water dimension there that uh, plays out so frequently in the narratives of the gospel accounts. So, so very arrogant overall and full of themselves, really like us. And that's the tension that I hope you guys feel, uh, and I want to invite you to feel this morning, is that we're going to get a little bit of a, don't be like the Pharisees and Sadducees, don't entertain their leaven or their teaching here, but at the same time, If we're honest with ourselves, we are a lot like them. That's the tension we've got to have. If you feel both of them, I think biblically at least, the only way to go is Jesus. You know, because it's very clear, we're not the solution. And if this is held up as a standard of sorts that we're not keeping, and we match up with it, and the answer is not ourselves, biblically the only place to run, the only person to run to is is God himself. So it's a great place to, to dwell in. That tension there. So have that in mind. Let that kind of hang in your mind too as we keep going this morning. But anyway, as the story goes, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees ask for a sign from him to test him. We're going to differentiate here signs and miracles a bit. They've seen some of his uh, miracles of healing so far, but in in the first century, in the the biblical witness here, there's a little bit of a difference. Sign would have been a bigger issue, a bigger deal, like the sign of the Exodus of of the Old Testament, or as he says, the sign of Jonah. Here. So they overlap quite a bit. It's this miraculous idea, but they're obviously wanting something more than, you know, sounds strange to say it, but just the miracles that they've seen so far. They want something that goes, goes past that. But anyway, they ask for that to test him. His rebuke, Jesus' rebuke, is very straightforward. He just says, you can interpret the weather by looking at the skies of the morning of or the previous day, but you can't interpret the fact that the kingdom of God is staring you in the face and talking to you right now. So a level of irony there, right? These are the spiritual leaders of Israel. And Jesus has strong words. He loves them, but strong words for them at times when he just acknowledged that. It's in the white space here a bit, but they should be the ones to understand the signs of the times, the kingdom of God, what the whole Old Testament, all of history has been building towards up to this point. What all of the Old Testament is about is wrapped up in this one man and he's walking around them, talking to them, and they can't understand. So there's layers and layers and layers of of irony here, but another place you see this play out a little bit more clearly is in John 3.10. Different situation, but uh, Jesus speaks to a Pharisee who's who's named for us. His name is Nicodemus, and he says the same kind of thing. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? It's the same kind of idea. You're supposed to be the ones that have a grasp on these matters, but... You're the ones that are completely in the dark. And so again, they don't read their Bibles correct. There's two layers to it then. You don't read the Bible correctly with Christ as and the Messiah as, as the focal point. And secondly, relatedly, you are evil and adulterous for seeking for a sign. And so we'll talk about why that's the case here in a minute. Why demanding for a sign on our terms is, is labeled evil and adulterous. And a piece, a piece to this leaven idea that Jesus is saying is just labeling evil something to Avoid. Then after that, Jesus uh, explains uh, the sign of Jonah. So he says, he does acknowledge that you're not going to get a sign, but you are going to get this one sign, the sign of Jonah, which is defined earlier in Matthew. We've already talked about this once. Spencer preached on Matthew 12, uh, 39 to 40 in in the uh, greater section there. I forget the exact section. But in verses 39 and 40, he defines it better. So I want to go back and read this, what the sign of Jonah is. Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So basically what Jesus is saying is quite simple. If you know the story of Jonah, prophet of the Old Testament, lived centuries and centuries before Jesus. Part of his journey to be a prophet and a preacher to Assyrians, to the Ninevites, was... uh, It was a roundabout way of getting there. We're going to all that today. But he spent three days and three nights in the belly of a sea monster in the Mediterranean and was vomited out on dry land uh, three days after the fact before going and and being that prophet figure uh, to these lost people. So Jesus is saying, I am the ultimate Jonah. I'm going to experience what he did, but on a heightened level. I, too, am going to be swallowed by something, but it's going to be the grave. I'm going to die. I, too, am going to be vomited out of something, but it's going to be uh, the the grave itself. So I'm going, to, I'm going to be swallowed up by the earth, but I'm going to walk out of it. So the, so the fish idea then is, is recapitulated here in tomb, in tomb, in tomb uh, verbiage. So the cross and the empty tomb are the epitome of Jesus' mission and the fulfillment of Jonah. He's saying, that's the sign. So to know who I am, to know I'm the Messiah, to know I'm the sent one of God, to know I'm here to fulfill all the promises of kingship and eternal life and the overthrowing of sin, to, to be a sign of all of that, I'm going to go to the cross and die and lie in a grave for three days and then come back out of it. I'm going to be that ultimate Jonah. So, then after that, we'll come back to some of that here in a bit, but to finish up the story here in general terms, after that is the second part of the narrative. It's a little bit confusing. Jesus then, after that, travels with his disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and says, Watch and beware of the leaven. Of the Pharisees, So we don't know this for sure, but it's likely because the disciples were with him right before this story and then right here in the boat traveling to the other side of the Sea of Galilee that they were witnessing this interaction. So Jesus is saying, beware of what you just saw. Beware of the teaching, the leaven of the Pharisees. But he says leaven at first. So the disciples, thinking more about their physical need than what Jesus is actually trying to say, respond by saying, well, we have no bread. So Jesus is saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're saying, but we have, no, we have no bread here. We forgot it on the other side of the lake. So, because what else could leaven mean than actually something about real bread, right? So bread they forgot to bring with them. That's how their mind is working. So Jesus corrects them on two levels. He's saying, first of all, how can you be concerned about bread when I am here with you? That's the first thing. We're going to talk about that here in specific terms in just a second. How can you be concerned about bread? There's two layers to his response. Second thing is to go back to actually what he's trying to teach them is, I'm not talking about physical leaven. I'm speaking in spiritual terms here. I'm talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I'm speaking in metaphor, metaphor talk. And so they just miss that. With Jesus, he does this all the time. And it's interesting. I always thought when I approached passages like this they just assume that just assumed that you know, our Western, maybe not, less spiritual, spiritualized way of thinking catered to this way of, you know, approaching the Scriptures. But it's neat to see, like, Eastern people actually wrestle with it, too. You know, like, just speaking in clear metaphor, but they're saying, but it's just bread. You know, like, no, there's a metaphor. Everything's a metaphor. Anyway, uh, but that's basically at 2 levels. So we're going we're to go back to the specific uh, issues here on those two fronts. So uh, how could you be concerned about bread when I'm with you? The disciples yet again fail to remember his provision and grace. Secondly, we'll just talk about the leaven of the Pharisees. What is that? We'll define that because here he just talks about teaching in general terms. But I think if you just peel back the layers here a bit, we get more to the why and it gets much more clear that this is something that is in every single one of our hearts in this room right now, Christian or not. And that's why Jesus is saying through this story, this little small little lens of history to all of us here right now, beware and seriously watch out for this. It is a, a damning thing. To be where they are. And we all have at least a semblance of it. We might be, still be saved, but have that old leaven, that old self that's festering a bit and starting to grow in our heart to be, to be aware of, to address with the gospel. If not, uh, it, will, it will grow and run rampant and become something much bigger and visible than uh, it is presently, like yeast and a little bit of dough starts out as. Okay, so let's do that at first. We'll go back to the disciples' issue first. And so the specific issue number one is the disciples yet again, yet again, fail to consider the feedings of thousands. So if you haven't been here for a few weeks, you won't quite feel the weight of this, and I'll try to give a little bit of context here for just a couple of seconds, but if you have been here, you'll feel the weight of this a little bit more. If it is your first Sunday here, just catching up, understand that right before this, Jesus has just finished feeding thousands of people miraculously with a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. But bread's the key thing there. So that comes up here and again in Matthew 16 too. He just got done literally right before this, feeding thousands of individuals and multiplying it out of nothing with a little bit of bread and fish. And twice actually. So once with 5,000, once with 4,000. Actually more than that because they're just counting men in those stories. But So women and children, about 10,000 per And doing it twice. And basically the same miracle, exactly the same way. The only difference is the slight amount of food they start with and the type of people that are being fed. In the latter story, it's non-Jews or Gentiles. We talked about last week. It's a whole big reason for that. super important, but we won't talk about that anymore today. But just understand that. that There's been making bread out of nothing miracles just pouring out of the fire hydrant in the disciples' face right here, you know, for the past, however, however long this was, for the past couple of weeks likely or something like that. And they're concerned about not having physical bread. They forgot it on their side of the Sea of Galilee and they're really, really worried about that. So this whole exchange with that, is that as the backdrop, this whole exchange for Jesus and, and for us looking into this, serves as this opportunity for us to gaze once again at the disciples' incredible faithlessness, their incredible lack of faith and spiritual forgetfulness. Read that one more time, verses 8 to 10. But Jesus aware of this when the disciples said, "...but we forgot bread." Said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 people and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? So, what Jesus is saying here essentially is, you're not remembering. You're not remembering my grace, my power, my provision, and my love. You're faithless. So if if faithful is being faithful before God is to trust in him and to believe that he's sufficient and just able to save on every level, then faithlessness is the opposite of this. They're looking at the fact that they have no bread, not to Jesus. Even though he's literally just right there in the boat. The guy who did it multiplied bread out of nothing, a super high level, twice. You know, recapitulated that over and over again for them. And here, so the story of the feeding of the thousands is coming to a head right here, where it's, it's being revisited one more time. And with it, the disciples' forgetfulness. They just forget. And remember, if, if this is really just about forgetfulness, like we talked about last week, then this is about us as well. This is not just about the disciples' idiocy. And it very easily gets labeled as that. We talk about passages like this. You know, it's, it's fine to acknowledge the fact that it's almost humorous, you know, to a degree that this is occurring, that's fine. But it's not just about the disciples' idiocy amongst the circumstance here. It's broader than that. It's about forgetfulness it's on, a spiritual, on a spiritual level. D.A. Carson, I mentioned this quote last week. I'll mention it again for those of you who weren't here. Uh, but he says in light of this whole dramatic storyline in the middle portions of Matthew, chapters 15 and 16 with the feeding of the thousands up to today's passage, he says one of the things we've got to do with this is just not lose sight of human beings' vast capacity for unbelief and their uncanny ability to suppress truth and be confronted with the divine and yet just go out the next day and, and act as though nothing happened. I mean, if you know anything about Israel's history, you know, in the desert, all the miracles they experience, the next day they wake up and demand something of God on a sinful level or go on living as though he's not capable of multiplying bread or fighting their battles for them or helping them enter the promised land or whatever it is. There's just this constant, constant, constant lack of faith and trust in God and a looking to circumstance and self and the impossibility of salvation on whatever level than there is otherwise with with God. So if we ask them, we come to passages like this. I mentioned this to a degree last week as well. But if we ask, how could they forget so quickly? One of the questions we need to immediately ask ourselves when we interpret passages like this is, have I ever forgotten the gospel on any level in my entire life? Have you ever forgotten the grace of God? Have you ever not lived as though God was sufficient for me? Have you ever not gazed at the beauty of the cross and just stood in awe of it? Have you ever had any semblance of that in your life at all? And we all have. If we're honest with ourselves, we all have. When we ask those questions, we immediately, I think the passage itself invites us just to sit down in humility with the disciples and associate with them here. Even if we wouldn't do this verbatim, this exact, wouldn't replicate this exactly this way, we forget the God. That's what they're doing. They're forgetting Jesus' power and his grace and his amazingness and looking to circumstance himself instead. In a Luma Sims' book called Gospel Amnesia, uh, she says it's a, partly a testimony, but she writes in her preface uh, on this issue, just forgetting the gospel. Most of my life, and she's saying this as a Christian, Most of my life has been spent finding one way or another to atone for myself. Again, even though she knows it's not true, just as a Christian, operating from a hazy understanding of what Christ did in this life, in his life, and death to win my salvation, this self atonement was like a vortex, a downward spiral into the depth of my amnesia. And she goes on to talk about that. But this is something we, we, we all, this is why we talk about the gospel all the time, because we have gospel amnesia. And, and we all, in some fashion, to varying degrees in different seasons of life and person to person, seek to self-atone, even as Christians. And when we're doing that, we're forgetting. It's not that so we're losing our salvation necessarily here. We're just underneath the umbrella of God saving us and loving us and being patient with us. We're just forgetting the degree to which we've been saved. I mean, you could, you could plug anything in there, just having seasons of, of sheer anxiety or wrestlings with sin. In one sense, we're always going to have that because we're still kind of in our old self and Jesus hasn't come, come back yet to fully rescue us in every capacity from that, even though we've been stamped with his approval of victory and his resurrection, even though we have all of that, um, we still long for full deliverance. But even with all of that said, we have, we res- we have wrestlings with that, right? We have wrestlings with all that stuff. And, and in that moment of sin and clinging to that, there's even just a little bit of forgetfulness. That Christ is better. He's more important. He's more beautiful. He's actually able to kill this sin for me. I actually am resurrected. And the degree to which we hold on to those things with our mind, that's where behavior starts to change. It always starts up here. What you believe about yourself in Christ, what you believe that actually happened on the cross and in the empty tomb, that starts to affect behavior, but only after you start to ponder those things. This is how the Bible talks all over the place in the New Testament about behavioral change. It does not start with behavior. You cannot speak to behavior and say change according to the Bible because we're too sinful for that. You can't say, don't be an adulterer anymore. You can't say, stop murdering. You can't say, stop being anxious. That's law. Law can't save, the Bible says. But we can be saved through, what you can address those things through, is the cross. When we forget that, though, we have that gospel amnesia and we start to self-atone. Start to self fix, start to be self help ish in the way we live out our spirituality under the guise of being Christian. That's what she's writing about here. And that's what we're getting a glimpse of here in Matthew 16. The whole story is just a type or a picture of forgetfulness, forgetting the gospel and not being remembers of the amazing grace and provision of our Lord and Savior. And this is what I think makes, and this is something so easily missable. I miss this almost every time, unless I'm reading slowly. Every time I read the passage, I encourage you guys to, if you highlight anything or write it in the margin, it would be this, this undergirding theme throughout Matthew 16, 1 to 12. And that is, this is what makes Jesus' persistence with the disciples, his persistent patience at that, so incredible, right? He stays with them. Isn't it amazing at this point? If you, if you feel like read this, A to Z and beginning to end, especially if you read it in one sitting, and get the, you feel the weight of this a little bit more. But if you've been here for a few weeks, you probably at least get a glimpse of this. That is, it's just incredible that he's still there. And yes, he has harsh words and once corrective words like a loving father to children. But at the same time, it's clear he has incredible depth of love expressed in patience for these people. So the Bible doesn't say, in other words, Jesus at this point, which you could almost understand, you know, if a human wrote this. Jesus, out of frustration, left the disciples forever (laughs) forever. You know, and, and there, was, there was no cross, and everyone went to hell forever. <laughs> you know, period. Bible ends. Like, you could almost understand that, right, at this point. But after time and time and time and time again of faithlessness, forgetfulness, sinfulness, imperfection, not trusting to his face, Jesus Christ. Jesus stays. He addresses it. changes importance important still through that, but he's still remaining faithful through that, right? His patience is incredible here. And the reason why this is so important to touch on is because it's the same for you guys today. Exact same thing is true and for me. God is patient on this level with us. If you've ever doubted before, ever been stuck in sin, ever been as a Christian just wrestling with remembering the gospel or feeling, why does the gospel not captivate me as much? Or trying to slay sin on your own with your own willpower rather than the spirit of God within you. Or whatever it is, you're basically living out the disciples here saying, we have no bread. We have no salvation. We don't have enough yet. If you ever thought, I, this last sin I committed this morning, or whenever it was, is the last straw, and there's no more forgiveness for me. Or in any way, just wondering about that. You might not say that with your words as a Christian, because you might know better. It's not true. But you might just feel that, and might, that might come in between your relationship with God. You're basically saying like the disciples, we have no bread. Where are we going to go? Impossible situation. Impossible situation. We're hungry. This is not going to work. Whatever. That's how we're operating effectively here. And so the patience of Jesus, saying, even amidst all of that, he addresses the faithfulness but says, I'm remaining your God. I'm remaining your Savior. I'm remaining your pa- the patient lover of your soul. And all this will be expressed fully on the cross later, by the way. This is just a glimpse. This is a hint, not the ultimate reality. So we can look to passages like Second uh, Peter 315, which says, count the patience of our Lord to salvation. In Psalm 103.8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Have you ever praised God for being slow to anger? It's like a thing I do almost every day. Because if he's not, we're, we're just dead. We're quick to be angry, but God is not like us. He's different. He's slow to be angry with Sinners like us. And praise God. That's demonstrated by his immense patience for forgetful people like us. So the point is just run back to him and and take refuge in the fact that, you know, you're not like one little slip up away from losing your salvation. You can't lose what God gives anyway. We're not a little doubt or a little bit of disbelief or being stuck in sin. We're not like that much, you know, far from being separated from him. He's fixed the banishment problem, Right? He's fixed the separation issue. He's taken our sin upon himself. He, he's even bore our, our sinful forgetfulness. It's part of what he died for. So we, we can't, don't live as though that's going to be some enduring wrench in the gears of your salvation experience with Jesus. It's just not. And we see that being beautifully played out here in, in this passage. So that's the drama of the gospel, right? We talk about it all the time here at the churches. We see God being capable and able and patient and loving and persistent with us in a good capacity. Right juxtaposed to that is human beings' inability. Just sheer, sheer inability to do it. And that's part of the point here. It's part of the literary device played out in Matthew 16 and just a variety of places is God's ability, humankind's inability. God saves. We don't. We forget, we stumble, we sin. Even as Christians, we look to other gods, but God is still faithful to gather sinners and wretches like us into the camp of salvation. And that's what you're seeing here. Jesus stays with them. Jesus saves to the uttermost, and he loves to the end. And that's what it says. He patiently taught them, and he loved them all the way to the end, in spite of their forgetfulness. So a lot of you guys just need to hear that today because you don't believe it. And it's, and it's the thing that's going to free you from the shackles of, of self like going back to the gospel amnesia thing, the self-atoning idea, being caught in the vortex, the downward spiral vortex of that that, you're, that we're all caught in to a degree. But Jesus saves you from that. Run back to him and take refuge in his patience, in his love, in the fact that he's not leaving you when you feel that way. He's right there with you saying, come to me, you are weak and weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Because so I'm dying for your sins. All right, that's the first piece here that we'll um, leave on the back burner now. Come back to a couple of these things to close, but we're gonna move on to the second part now of this passage. So if the first part's about the disciples' failure and the success of God expressed in his patience and love and completing that story, going back to the feeding of the thousands, the second part moves on to this teachable moment, this leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Jesus says again, this is verse six, Jesus said to them, watch and beware. Really strong words linguistically here. Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in verse 12, they understood then that he did not tell them beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. All right, so teaching again is is a broad idea. There's kind of a, a macro idea and a micro idea here. He says, because we learn a lot about the Pharisees and Sadducees teaching things elsewhere in the Bible too, so We'll we'll broaden out and summarize a little bit of that, but I think it's also helpful to look in the micro sense here. In other words, just to Matthew 16, what just happened, and say it was right on the heels of the Pharisees and Sadducees demanding a sign from Jesus Christ to test him that Jesus then says, evil and adulterous, he calls it that, but then says to the disciples, watch out for the leaven of that. And So I think it's fair to look at it as kind of a test case for what Jesus is warning the disciples of. Leaven metaphorically signifies a small, unseen thing that brings about great, terrible results later. Usually, just I think I said this before, if I didn't, I should mention, biblically, leaven is a metaphor for evil almost all the time. The Jews have a feast of unleavened bread in the Old Testament, too, in association with the Passover. It's a long, cool, uh, thematic thread there, too, that we don't have time to touch on today. But biblically, it's usually a sign for evil. But as you widen out to the greater metaphor, it's like a little bit of yeast In a a big bit of dough. And it works in small, unseen ways, kind of behind the scene to become a much bigger thing or to pull from the way he's using it, a much bigger, terrible thing later on. So what Jesus is basically asking here the disciples to do is think about what just happened. Because they're there. Think about this interaction I just had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees when they tested me and demanded a sign on their terms before they would believe in me. Think about that. And pull back the layers, essentially, of what the Pharisees and Sadducees just said to see what lies beneath it. Or to go back to that classic um, uh, iceberg illustration, which a lot of you guys have probably seen used so many places, of the 10% of the iceberg or less is above the water. Look at what's below the water. Look at the 90-plus percent of the iceberg below the water. Because what we're seeing above the water is these Pharisees and Sadducees, in one sense, kind of seemingly... Innocently, just saying we want to see a sign. Show us a sign that we might know that you are the Christ. That you are the one who you claim who you claim that to be. And the prophets are predicting that we're waiting for. Show us a sign. But if you, pull, if you pull back the layers of that and say, well, they're testing, they're demanding on their terms. It's a sense to it above the water, but... Mixing metaphors. <laughs> pull back the covers of the, whatever, the water. Mixing metaphors. But look beneath the water, pull back the, uh, the layers, look behind the curtain, whatever you prefer there. Uh, and and ask, what's the great why behind it? What leaven is at work? Think about it that way. What leaven is at work multiplying in their hearts to lead them to demand for a sign on this level? So when we do that, when we look deeper than the surface of the Pharisees and Sadducees asking for a sign, this is what we see, I think. We see essentially people demanding something of God on their terms, right? Right? They're saying, this is what I need to see from you. This is what I want to see before I come to you. Which is effectively, if you think about it in those capacities, it's a type of work before God versus rest. Because it says, we determine what's needed for us to come to God. Like if I were to say that to God, I'm determining what needs to be done. I'm, I'm defining the issue. I'm kind of explaining the mediator. This has to happen out here and you're over there. And then once it does, I'll come through that to you. So it's a type of work, it's a type of religious exercise before God, not a type of just resting on what God reveals himself as in the scriptures. You guys see the difference? Really important to see. So it's far from submission to God, in other words. And this fits in really well with what we've already seen from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are the epitome of arrogance and and religious moralists in the New Testament that are not entering the kingdom of God. Because they're operating as though it is by, it, it is on their terms that they enter the kingdom of God. Not on the terms God presents. Not on God revealing salvation, but on us working out that salvation on our own strength. And defining the parameters of what it takes to be saved and enter that kingdom. And at the core of arrogance is a lot of things, but part of what's there is entitlement right? The core of arrogance is, is entitlement. Big thing in our society today, big, a big thread in the scriptures as well, which you see play out with the Pharisees and Sadducees and all of that too. But it's just true of all of us. Entitlement. We deserve things, we think. And we say this to ourselves all the time, right? Like, I deserve, I deserve a weekend off. It was just a hard week being a mom or a dad or, sorry. <laughs> sorry to look at my wife uh, or a dad. But, um, I deserve, deserve, you know, I I actually caught myself saying it to my daughter um, last week. I can't remember if I actually said it or caught myself. And by the way, it's not wrong to say this. I mean, sometimes you just got to say, you know, Jane, you deserve some frozen yogurt. Let's go to Menchie's or whatever, you know, and just like we do frequently. But uh, just to say it, like you had a great, you're so nice to your brother there. You had a great day at school, whatever. We shouldn't turn off the faucet completely necessarily to that phrase. But in general, if it's spiritualized, that's where it becomes very harmful. Because we don't deserve things. All of Jesus' teachings just orbits around the sun of, you don't deserve anything. Anything. Culture says you deserve a lot. Jesus says you deserve zero. You're loved. You're my child. You're my creation. You're in my image. But I'm giving you undeserved grace. This is precisely the offensive nature of the gospel. This is what religious people say, can't touch it, I'm gone. Because they approach the whole matter, they presuppose they're good. And they do deserve maybe not lots of things, but at least some things. I work pretty hard. Pretty good person. I deserve rest. I deserve a little bit of gift from God here and there. But that's, that's see that's the small little bit of that you can kind of see already. And just the way I'm talking about it, it's a little bit of leaven. If that festers too much, it's a cancer for the soul. I mean, you're toast. We're all, all of us toast if we let that leaven go unchecked. This is how, this is why Jesus confronts it. It's uh it's this leaven-crushing or leaven-removing type grace from, to make us unleavened. Give us this unleavened spiritual experience before God. It's what the gospel in part does. It's also why I think Jesus here calls this evil and adulterous, uh, it, highlighting the idea of adulterous here because Jesus is not talking about Just praying for signs and miracles. It's it's right to ask God. God wants us to ask him of things and to pray for miracles, to pray for healings. And he's not talking about that. Those are good things. It's a very biblical concept to pray without ceasing, to ask him for things. He's talking about these guys testing him by demanding a sign before they believe. See the big difference there? This is about demanding something of God before they believe. If you do this, God, then then I will do this. By the way, you guys ever seen the movie Signs? That uh, M. Night Shyamalan? I'm not going to pronounce that guy's last name, but the Mel Gibson one, Alien, Cornfields, anybody? Seen a couple nods, okay. Um, so I'm just going to wreck it here. So plug your ears if you don't want to know the movie, but it's been out forever, so tough break. Uh, but So there's a Mel Gibson character who's a priest. His wife dies, and uh, in this kind of freak accident, he leaves the priesthood. And then later in the story, it's kind of this cool conclusion how, you know, this, all this providence at work that he ends up seeing as a God thing saves his son from dying of a, an asthma attack at the very end. And the, and the final scene is him kind of wearing the collar thing again and being you know, being a priest. And so in one sense, pretty cool. I, I like that that is really what the movie is about. It's not really an alien movie. It's really about this, this Mel Gibson character, you know, and this God providence thing and all that. At least that's what I think, but whatever. That's kind of why I like it. But at the same time, there's an, there's an element there of if you – if you approach God on those terms, if, you know, if, if there's a miracle that has to occur or if there's something that happens that, that sends you away from God, some negative thing or some positive thing that you say, well, because you gave me that, then I'll, then I'll approach you. You'll be tossed by the waves the rest of your life and, and you will not enter the kingdom because, I mean, think about the Mel Gibson character. What happens when his daughter dies tomorrow? What happens when he, his house burns down? What happens when weather afflicts his crops and he, you know, he makes no money there? I mean, you could just say something bad's going to, we see the movie ending, but then what happens the next day, you know? And so you've got to start thinking about that and think if, you're, if, our, if how we're mediated to God is, is bent on circumstance and something that you request of him or need from him before you, you'll never enter. This is, this is the point. You'll be tossed by, by the waves and, and thrown around by the wind, coming back to God. Thank you, God. Oh, but you know what? I can't handle that. There's no way that could be from you. You know, how dare you? And we'll, we'll just kind of, like the Mel Gibson character, leave the priesthood, you know, in a figurative sense. So we'll leave God. Uh, But anyway, I think going back to what I was saying about adulterous, I think that when when we live this way, it's adulterous because what this is, is it's a whoring out of oneself to another God, the God of self. It's saying, if I were God, this is how I would reveal myself to the world. It's not good that God is only revealing himself this way through the sign of Jonah. What he really needs, should have done, is the spirit of this, is to reveal himself in much bigger, more obviously miraculous ways, and, and that's how. But to say that this is, how, this is how God should have lived or acted or revealed himself you know, is to put ourselves in the place of God, which is the epitome of sin. So what this is actually meant to do then is, is drive us back to that or remind us of the core of sin. Actually, in the Old Testament, evil and adulterous is used of Israel constantly in the desert when they were a faithless generation showing repeatedly how God himself was not enough for them They want to go back to Egypt and not believe the fact that he was able to multiply bread in the dew of the morning and not believe he could fight their battles for them and say, here's our king, not the the king you decided for us to have, God, but we fashioned our own king. Isn't he tall and handsome and great and strong? I mean, all these things are just different versions of a working out of self-righteousness and us being our own gods and us being great and us saving ourselves. And it's the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's religion, and it's an adulterous thing uh, because biblically, we're related to God. He's like our husband spiritually, and the church is the bride. And when we whore ourselves out to other things, it's called biblically prostitution spiritually. And so the reality, biblically, going back to the patience thing, is that God is like a patient, loving, faithful husband who welcomes back a, a prostitute wife who's lived that lifestyle for 20 years, and he has an open door, and he brings her back in. And it's incredible. This is, what we, this is who we are this is, who, this is what God is like. This is what he's done and accomplished for us on the cross. This is how he's, this is how he's loved us. So, so if you go back then to the question of what's the leaven, we talked about that, some things here. What's preferred then? What, 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 is, what is an unleavened type existence, spiritually speaking? In other words, what's the opposite of all we just talked about? The answer broadly is humbly submitting to how God himself wants to reveal himself. Which, according to Jesus, does include signs of healings and miracles at times, but they're on his terms, not ours, and they all traject ahead to the greater miracle and the greatest of all signs, which is the cross and the empty tomb, the sign of Jonah. This is what he's saying. He gets very clear here on what the ultimate sign is, right? They not want to guess at this point, well, what's the one sign? What's the one thing here, you know? He just says, it's the sign of Jonah. It's me dying. It's me being buried. It's me overwhelming death three days later for you. That's the sign of God for us today to be reminded of. So there's no better place to go. No better place to see God's love. No better place to understand salvation or find refuge or see his power at work or see his authority or see him destroy our enemies, sin and death being, and Satan being the foremost of them. No better place to see him usher in the kingdom and see him heal and feed us. No better place to bring order and peace. It is the place. We can get, we can get glimpses of Jesus being these types of things for us in, in creation in the world, but we're not going to understand the love of God at the base of a mountain looking at it or looking out into the stars or an ocean or in the best days of a marriage. Though those things can give us hints and whispers of the love of God. We don't see it there as mu- nearly as much as we do on the cross. Because there's no greater love than sacrifice, and no greater sacrifice than God for people on a bloody cross. So that's where we under, That's how we know God. Some of you guys might be here today thinking, how do I even know God? How do we know him? The Bible's answer is, on his terms, on the cross. That's how he's revealed himself to us. The Bible's all about revelation. We bend the knee to how God works and reveals himself in the world, and he does it by grace. We don't manufacture any of that. He reveals himself in these ways. I'm loving, I'm patient, I'm kind, merciful, generous, hospitable, salvific. The biggest way you see that is the climax of the whole of the Bible, the cross and the empty tomb. So to wrap up here, uh, is two things in summary. Uh, the one thing is, don't miss the big imperative. And this is not just for the disciples, it's for us. Like I said before, we all have leaven in our hearts. Beware and watch out. For the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In other words, beware of pride, beware of entitlement in thinking you deserve things from God, because you don't. Beware of works-based righteousness. Beware of approaching God on your terms and what you do, rather than God's terms and what he does in coming to us. Beware of selfishness. Beware of pursuing some kind of mediator between you and God, besides the cross and besides the empty tomb. And conversely, know him through those latter things. That's his primary chosen form of self-disclosure. That's what we're called to just believe in and rest in and say, it's enough. And why it's so dangerous and called so evil and so adulterous to not believe that, it is to say the cross isn't enough. If you look elsewhere for something else, we're saying God and his his chosen means of self-disclosure and salvation isn't sufficient. And we see the dramatic threat of that, the repeated threat of that happen over and over and over and over and over again, Old and New Testament, as a warning. The Bible's very clear. These are warnings for us, the church, written down for us, even in the Old Testament times, to be pictures of latter realities for us to look at and say, some don't endure in belief. Some look to circumstance, some look to other gods, some look to themselves, some look to their past, some look how better things were before, because they were just free to sin. Whatever it is, they go back to it. But God says, this is how I'm disclosing my reality, my worldview, your reality and worldview, what salvation is, all of that. Love and patience, this is how I'm revealing myself, and this should be sufficient for you. So check your heart. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then secondly, moving into that, just rejoice. Jesus has given us a sign. This is a, an oft-missed thing here as well, I think, in this passage, because you know, the, the main crux of the, the combative, butt heading, heading butt-heading thing that happens between the religious rulers and Jesus is, is not necessarily this, but note that Jesus has given us a sign. He didn't just say, You're not going to get a sign. He says, I'm actually giving you a sign. How amazingly gracious, right? He says, I'm giving you a sign, and, it's, and he defines it it's the sign of Jonah to prove that he was, in fact, who he said he was the Christ. The son of the living God, the sign of Jonah. Which, again, repeated theme. Big thing we've been talking about these last few weeks. If you guys have been here, I want to pound that home one more time. Two weeks ago was a repeated theme of healings in the Bible. God wants you to know he's a healer. And he puts it dozens of times in the Bible to that end. Last week, he talked about the feedings. He does two feedings miracles because he wants you to know he's a feeder of the soul. He's the bread of life. He's sufficient. So it happens not once but twice. Here in Matthew, the sign of Jonah comes up not once, though that's sufficient, but it comes up twice. To Pharisees, yeah, in the first case, it was more Pharisees with the same issue, the same question. I want to see a sign. Here again, sign of Jonah, sign of Jonah, sign of Jonah, sign of Jonah. God wants you to know he's died for your sins. That's the sign of my love for you, is just that. I've given you it. My power, my mercy, my grace, my salvation, It's all been me all the time, dying on a bloody cross among criminals for your sins, being swallowed by the grave, then overwhelming it with my resurrection. That's all you need forever. Do you believe that? Is it sufficient for you? Is there anything else that you've fashioned as a God or a necessary mediator before him? Is there any leaven in your heart? Just be honest with yourself and your community, your good friends. Confess that. And say, this is the leaven I'm feeling. Help me check it. Help me kill it with the gospel and say, praise God that Jesus has died for leavened hearts like mine. Because he has. Glory to God forever. So let's pray and uh, we will respond here. God, thanks for uh, today again, the gospel of Matthew 16, 1-12. Helping us see uh, both this positive dimension of you being a patient lover of our souls. Praise you for that forever. And showing that to us fully on the cross. Also seeing this repeated theme, God, clearly of the sign of Jonah being the ultimate divine sign for a dead and dying world that God is, in fact, Savior. He is, Jesus is the King. He is the promised one. He is the suffering servant who bore our transgressions on a cross. And also seeing, God, this negative dimension here of having leaven, being evil, being adulterous, being doubters, being unfaithful, being wanderers, wanting to go back to Egypt, I mean, all of this, it just plays into this greater idea of we are not saviors. We are not good. But you are good alone. Thank you for being so good to us and so patient, so merciful. God, forgive us our faithlessness and our forgetfulness and help us remember time and time again, every day, every week as we gather here, that you are good, loving, in control, patient. And you are a savior of sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors wretches, adulterers like us. God, thank you so much uh, for dying for us and displaying that here today in this narrative. Help us to respond, not just in these two songs, but throughout our week out of sheer gratefulness for who you are and your work uh, in, in the world. In Christ's name, we pray it all. Amen.